Hey, I'm Catherine Byam, and today with Tessa Clark, we discuss the journey to build a globally relevant, green-first, digital-first business as a female founder. We talk also about the rules Tessa and her co-founder are breaking, and also advice on sustainable and practical things you can do for the planet without giving anything up. Listen to a clip now. Honestly, one of the easiest ways to massively reduce your carbon and your waste footprint is to stop throwing away food. Now, to most people, it's really hard to get your head around how environmentally damaging food waste is because food seems natural and organic and it comes from the ground and it returns to the ground. Sort of how bad can that be? But um, the reality is it is absolutely devastating. So if it were to be a country, food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China. And that's because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that has never been eaten. My name is Catherine Ann Byam, and I'm your host. What's your purpose, and how does it integrate with sustaining life itself? For some of us, this question is a deep ache that we spend a lifetime trying to find, perhaps shifting direction as we learn and grow from one path to another. For many of us, our children give us a clear definition. Providing for them becomes our reason for being. For others, it's about enjoying the present moment, ever so fleeting and ever so beautiful. For still others, it can be financial, status, contribution or impact. In this podcast, my guest and I will share with you tips, ideas and methods on how to build a career that integrates with who you are and the life you want to lead. We will explore the social foundation on which to build your transition and an ecological ceiling above which we need not climb so that we live not just for ourselves, but for our collective ability to thrive. Welcome to the Purpose Driven Career Podcast, Do What Matters. Tessa Clark is co-founder and CEO of Olio, a free app tackling the problem of waste by connecting neighbours with each other and volunteers with local businesses so that surplus food and other household items can be given away, not thrown away. Olio has grown to 6 million users in just over five years, and its impact has been widely recognized, most notably by the United Nations, who highlighted Olio as a beacon for the world, and by VivaTech, who awarded Olio the next European unicorn. Prior to Olio, Tessa had a 15-year corporate career as a digital managing director in the media, retail, and financial services sector, and she met her co-founder, Sasha, whilst they were studying for their MBAs at Stanford University. Tessa's passionate about the sharing economy as a solution for a sustainable world and about profit with purpose as the next business paradigm. Tessa, it's so great to have you in the podcast. Thank you. Great to be with you. So who is Tessa Clark, really? Wow, what a great question. Um, Well, I am dialing in today from Wiltshire uh, in the UK, where I live with my two young children who are seven and nine and my husband. And then we have two dogs, little and large. We have an enormous Great Dane and a tiny Poochie, which is Poodle Cross Chihuahua, uh, and a cat. And um, I'm co-founder and CEO of Olio, as obviously we've discussed. But also, uh, I guess, of interest and really informing kind of who I am today. I was born and raised on my parents' farm up in North Yorkshire in uh, the northeast of the UK. And that upbringing, which was one characterized by an awful lot of hard work on the family farm, has really informed who I am today. And it's also given me my passion for the environment and sustainability and my pathological hatred for food waste and indeed waste of any variety. 
Olia has become a trending brand name in the sustainability space. What prompted you to begin that journey? Well, as I've touched on, I was uh, brought up on a farm. And as a result of that, I learned firsthand just how much hard work goes into producing the food that we all eat every day. And so as a result of that, I've spent much of my life going to crazy lengths to avoid throwing away food. Now, I didn't think anything in particular about that, to be honest, until I had a seemingly inconsequential moment in my life seven years ago, um, where my hatred of food waste was taken to new extremes. So I was living and working in Switzerland with my family. And we were moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, obviously, I was not prepared to do this. So much to their irritation, I stopped packing and instead bundled up uh, my newborn and toddler at the time and set out into the streets, clutching this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And to cut a long story short, I failed miserably. The lady who was normally always in this one spot for some reason wasn't there that day. And so I very despondently turned around and went back to my apartment, but I wasn't to be defeated. So when the removal men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was the moment where I just thought, this is crazy the lengths I'm going to, to avoid throwing away perfectly good food. I'd been working digital for a decade at that point in time. I knew there's an app for everything. I couldn't believe there wasn't a simple app where I could just advertise my food and whoever wanted it could pop around and pick it up. It's interesting because I think we've kind of lost this idea of of neighborhoods and sharing. It's something that's it's seemingly it's disappeared. We lost trust. We're not doing that openness anymore. And yeah. I guess the app is a great way to bridge that divide. What it has is, the experience been? Yeah, it is. You're you're absolutely correct. So what we've discovered is that there are lots of reasons why people have too much food at home. But that doesn't explain why it becomes waste. The reason why it becomes waste, it becomes waste is because we no longer have anyone to give our food to, no longer connected to our local community. And whilst we are in many ways more connected than we've ever been before, we're actually lonelier than we've ever been before. And so the real magic of Olio is not so much the app, it's the doorstep connection that the app facilitates. It's bringing two people together in real life who live in the same community to exchange something of value to make sure that something has a second life and people tell us the whole time that they uh, since joining Olio they feel really empowered they feel connected they feel safer because they know who their neighbors are for the first time and we ran some research at the end of last year and over 40 percent of our community said that they feel less lonely since joining Olio and also over 40 percent of our community say that they've made friends via Olio so that sort of doorstep connection really is, is the magic bit. That's an incredible impact that you're having beyond the objective. Yeah. How are you feeling about that? Yeah, it, 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 it's amazing. And it's certainly something that Sasha and I hadn't necessarily anticipated when we first founded Olio. We approached the problem of food waste really through the lens of it just being a chronic sort of market inefficiency and being environmentally devastating. And to us, it was very logical that an app could sort of solve the problem that we hadn't at all really appreciated just how powerful the impact would be on a on a human level and on a community level. What are the top three challenges you've faced as a female founder and what causes are you now championing because of those challenges? So I would say that I haven't faced any challenges as a female founder and in fact being a female founder has been nothing other than positive with one exception. So I've only got one challenge and that has been fundraising. So 
if you take sort of both the UK and Europe, unfortunately, the data is, is equally hideous for both. But basically, just 1% of all venture capital funding goes to female founded businesses, 89% goes to male founded businesses, and 10% goes to mixed teams. And they are just incredibly daunting and dispiriting and infuriating statistics to have to kind of go out uh, and fight against. And we've done, we have done that. We have successfully raised five rounds of financing and we have raised over $50 million, but it has been so difficult and so painful. And I am so angry (laughs) about this because when I look at sort of what we're trying to do at Olio, but also when I look at sort of the impact space more broadly, and I see the founders who are trying to solve the really, really hard problems facing humanity today, they are without exception, just an incredibly diverse group of people. And so by sort of short funding, female founders and diverse founders of all types, we are we're sort of short funding humanity. And I think that is really, really worrying. Absolutely agree. I've read the statistics and it's something that I found interesting in sort of digging into this topic is that I don't know how much of this has created a barrier to female founders even coming forward, which is even exacerbating the problem. Mm-hmm. I don't know if your research has touched on any of that. but Well, I can only, I can only talk, talk to my own personal experience. And my personal experience is that there is no shortage of awesome female founders out there. And I'm speaking to them every single week. I always make sure to carve out an hour or two um, to speak to other uh, female and diverse founders. And I'm overwhelmed by how many they are and how high caliber they are. But the challenge really does exist in that kind of zero to one bit is kind of really unlocking that first funding is most difficult. I did see some data fairly recently, which showed that once female founder got funding, then actually their probability of onward funding was actually pretty good. So it really is that very, very formative stage of the business when actually really investors are investing in you as a person. And that's where we're, we're sort of struggling to get enough capital to female founders. It's really interesting. So corporate Tessa versus entrepreneurial Tessa, what's changed in your leadership when you compare and contrast both versions of yourself? Well, um, I'm a good sort of decade older uh, now than I was then. And I would say probably the the biggest change just has been in my own confidence. And once you have more confidence, I think that then sort of gives you permission to be a lot more authentic as a leader and also as part of that, a lot more vulnerable. And I have realized just how underrated, but also how powerful authenticity and vulnerability are as a leader. And certainly, you know, kind of in the early days of my career, I used to think that I had to present this sort of perfect front and I had to have the answer for everything and I had to be completely in control. And I've realized that when you kind of open up and share the challenges that you're facing very openly with the teams that you're trying to lead, they respond really, really well to that. So that's probably um, the biggest change. I think the other change in me is I've just got less prepared to sort of fall in line behind the status quo. I I just sort of feel life is too short and I'm just getting bolder and bolder about calling out the inequities and and the injustices that I see. Um, So yeah, in a way that I never would have done in, in the early days of my career. What would you say you're still working on? So many things. Um, one thing that is 
is very sort of top of mind for me right now and very much kind of leading on from the conversation we've had to date is around um, figuring out how I ensure that the hard work that Sasha, my co-founder, and I have done around building a diverse team, which we have done it earlier, we've got a super, super diverse team, but how do we make sure that that really does sort of translate and map across to a truly inclusive company culture? Because I think sort of a diverse team and inclusive company culture aren't totally synonymous, and there's a lot of hard work that needs to be done around that. And in particular, kind of educating myself, I'm a sample of one out in the world, and I need to invest a lot of time learning about other people's perspectives, in particular people who are from um, those more sort of diverse backgrounds. And, and I mean every aspect um, of diversity, not just kind of the obvious ones of gender and ethnicity, um, for example. So that's something that I'm I'm doing a lot of work around. And it, it's it's quite an intimidating area to do work in, right? Because the only thing that's guaranteed is you're going to get something wrong and inadvertently upset someone. Um, so it is a difficult area to tackle, but it's one that I think I've just got to be brave and authentic and give it a go. It's interesting because if you look back at corporate performance of the past, you see companies that would have made strategic changes in perhaps their management teams, in, in entire sections of their organization to bring in sort of new energy, uh, bring in younger staff. And part of that has been to sort of mold those new team members into this sort of expectation of what the company wanted. But today, what we're seeing with, with diversity and inclusion, what we're seeing with even sustainability and all of these things, is that it has to come through even before that. Like, you can't just recruit people off the market and get what you're looking for. You actually have to go even further back in terms of the education systems that are sort of influencing the kind of thinking, because the changes are so fundamental, they affect everything. How, yeah. how are you dealing with that? Well, um, I mean, the honest answer is we're, relatively speaking, still quite a small organization. So we can't, we just don't have the resources right now to kind of step back into the education system. Um, although I can absolutely see how as, as the larger employers, they kind of, they need to do that. So what we do is we're just super focused in recruitment and working hard to kind of find the right folks to join our organization. So we're definitely looking for kind of culture ad rather than just culture fit. And we also work really hard around recruiting to our company values, because we think that kind of, if you get values aligned people, then uh, who are, you know, values aligned people who are mission obsessed, which are the two things we really look for, then everything else will, will sort of follow on from there. So our, our company values are inclusive, resourceful, caring, and ambitious. So there's just four of them, but we find them to be really, really kind of powerful and effective and helpful in terms of assembling kind of the right group of people and building a really strong company culture. What traditions would you say your Green First, Digital First organization is breaking in terms of leadership structures? So we've kind of touched on uh, diversity. So obviously we're a female co-founded business, which is sort of rare as hen's teeth. Uh, our senior leadership team is... Uh, so, you know, 50% female um, and super diverse along um, a number of other dimensions as well. In terms of neurodiversity, well over 20% of our team identify as being um, neurodiverse. Uh, and then back to the gender one, I'm incredibly proud of the fact that 
So at last count on Tuesday of last week, uh, 53% of our engineering team was female. So we've definitely kind of worked really hard um, around the diversity piece. I think the second thing that we've done, it's now become very commonplace, but when we started it, it wasn't. So we've been a remote, remote first company from day one. So kind of, you know, seven years ago, Sasha and I built the organization from the grassroots up to be remote first, really born out of a very practical requirement. We didn't live in the same place. We both had young kids and we didn't have the time or money to commute to an office that neither of us wanted to be in. And we have found this organizational structure just to be incredibly powerful one because it's opened up a massive talent pool for us. We've realized that there are so many people who do not want to live, for example, in the middle of London and commute to a job. And so we've been able to attract brilliant talent to the company. And we are also able to kind of retain people really well because we give them complete flexibility over how they manage their working life. And so that's another thing. I think during the pandemic, a lot of businesses sort of transition to being remote. Of course, they had to, but they tried to apply that sort of nine to five office mentality to remote working. And that's not really how to do it. So we really lean into giving people autonomy and flexibility over their work. So we've definitely done a lot of stuff sort of differently around being remote first. Uh, and then I think the third thing that we've done very differently is Olio has grown very much thanks to our community and our volunteers. So we have over 50,000 people who've reached out to offer to spread the word about Olio and to, to become Olio ambassadors in their local communities. And it's thanks to them that we've had items successfully shared in 63 countries so far. And then we've got an equally important type of volunteer. We've got 46,000 food waste heroes. These are people who we recruit from our community. We train them online on our food safety management system. And then they can claim a collection slot at a local business. And what that means is that on their allotted time and day, they can pop out the house across the road. They can pick up all the unsold food from that business. So, for example, from a Tesco or Pret-a-Manger. They take that food home, they add it to the app. Within minutes, the neighbors are requesting it. And minutes later, they're popping around and picking it up. And we're really unusual. There aren't many examples of tech startups that are for profit that are also um, so rooted in the community as their growth engine. Yeah, I think this is so powerful. I want to switch now to sort of growing this greater impact and social change you are championing and, and being mission focused on. When I put that in the context of the employees here at Amazon, can you give some advice on how they can start getting involved and engaged in this space and your recommendations for how to do that within if even they didn't want to start their own startups? Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I'd recommend to anybody is to read a couple of books and watch a couple of documentaries, like get some fire in your belly, because once you learn the truth, you will not fail to want to um, get involved with this as a matter of urgency. Uh, a favorite book of mine in this space is a book by Naomi Klein, and it's called This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. There's another great book called The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding. And there's no shortage of fabulous um, documentaries. Uh, so, yeah, definitely kind of read up, watch up, get the fire in your belly. Uh, a second thing I would encourage people to do, now this might sound like I'm very biased, but honestly, one of the easiest ways to massively reduce your carbon and your waste footprint is to stop throwing away food. Now, to most people, it's really hard to get your head around 
how environmentally damaging food waste is because food seems natural and organic and it comes from the ground and it returns to the ground sort of how bad can that be but um, the reality is it is absolutely devastating so if it were to be a country food waste would be the third largest source of greenhouse gas emissions after the USA and China and that's because a landmass larger than China is used every single year to grow food that has never been eaten and when most people hear about the food waste problem they instinctively think well it must be the supermarkets that must be sort of that's where the problem is and that couldn't be further from the truth so using UK data but this is very similar in many other countries half of all food waste takes place in the home and just two percent of all food waste takes place at a retail store level. And the reason for that is because there's 28 million households throwing away 20% of the weekly shop, collectively adds up to 14 billion pounds of the perfectly good food being thrown away every single year. So our plea really is to everybody to give your food away uh, rather than throwing it away. And actually this um, data was sort of missed, sadly, kind of um, due to COVID. But there's an incredibly powerful piece of work called Project Drawdown, which stack ranks the top 100 solutions to the climate crisis. And for a maximum two degree warmed world, in position number one, the single most powerful thing humanity can do to avert the worst effects of the climate crisis is to stop wasting food. And that comes above electric cars, above solar power and above a plant based diet. And it really is one of the easiest things Like we can all get involved. We can all make a difference in our homes starting sort of today. The second area I would point people to is just to kind of their consumption overall. So there's a concept that when I discovered it absolutely blew my brains. It's called Earth Overshoot Day. So that is the day in the year in which humanity has used all the resources that the Earth can replenish in a year. So it was first measured in 1969. Back then, Earth Overshoot Day was the 31st of December. So what that means is humanity used in a year what the Earth could replenish in a year. Back then, we were living in equilibrium with the planet. If you yeah. fast forward to last year, Earth Overshoot Day was the 29th of July. And so what that means is that every single thing that every single one of us, seven and a half billion people consumed after the 29th of July last year was net-net depletive to the planet. So really, really encourage people to make very careful, very wise um, consumption decisions. And then the third thing I would say is, and, and one of the highest sort of impact things you can do is to move your money. So there's an incredible campaign being run by the filmmaker, uh, Richard Curtis, and it's called Move Your Money, I think. Uh, and it's basically about kind of moving your pension funds and um, your bank savings and stuff like that out of investments that are supporting the fossil fuel industry into uh, green areas. And I think their data shows that that's sort of 21 times more powerful than the next most powerful thing you can do as an individual to play your part in solving the climate crisis. And then the final message I'd have is really easy to assume that solving the climate crisis in your home, one feels kind of very intimidating and daunting and out of reach. And perhaps it feels like it might be all about sacrifice, but it absolutely isn't. So if, um, myself, my family, we've been on this journey now to try and lead a more sustainable life for about four or five years. And we have honestly found that we are healthier, we are wealthier, and we are happier as a result of changing how we're, how we're living and how we're consuming. 
Really incredibly powerful statistics and advice. Thank you so much for that contribution. I just want to ask you one last question, which is how can people stay in touch with you and and connect with, with Olio? So really simple. Um, they can download Olio from the App Store or Google Play, O-L-I-O, um, or you can search for us online and find us on our website. And we're on social media. Our handle um, on Instagram, for example, is at olio.app. Perfect. Thank you so much, Tessa, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This episode was brought to you today by the Courageous Career Club. Have you picked up your own copy of Do What Matters, the Purpose Driven Career Transition Guidebook? To find out how you can get your copy, as well as resources that go alongside it, visit my website, www.catherineannbyam.com, or engage with me on the socials. I'm looking forward to hearing from you.